supporting the military is something that's always very important to me. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? I spent two years in the service, and I was proud to be part of it. I wore that uniform with a pride and dignity, just like I wore the Dodger uniform with great character and love. The greatest name in the history of the Cleveland Indians franchise, Mr. Bob Feller. The American Dog Podcast, where we share stories from people speaking about acts of valor, citizenship, service to others, and sacrifice in times of need, as represented by Bob Feller in his service during World War II. My name is Nathaniel Cameron, alongside Tyler Buckholtz and Colin Kirk. In January of 2020, we had the privilege of speaking to baseball columnist Mr. Buster Olney. Buster has covered baseball for both the New York Times and for ESPN. Mr. Olney, on this podcast, shares his lifelong love of the game of baseball and his appreciation for the people and characters that make up the game, including his time with United States Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Jerry Coleman and his thoughts on Coleman's humility towards his military service in World War II in Korea. Of the nearly 20,000 people to play Major League Baseball, Coleman is the only one to see combat in two wars. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today, Mr. Olney. Like Bob Feller, you grew up on a farm. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, great to talk with you. Yeah, and that's that's where I grew up. I actually was born in Washington, D.C., and then when I was six months old, my, my uh, parents moved up to Vermont, and uh, when I was seven, my mom got divorced, and when I was uh, nine years old, they bought a farm in Randolph Center, Vermont, and that's a farm that's still in the family, and you know, at one point had as many as 50 cows, and I always tell people that uh, growing up on the farm was the absolute perfect training for being a baseball writer because when you're on a farm there are no days off uh the only time that i didn't have to go out to a barn you'd go out to the barn in the morning and then you go out the barn again at night uh the only morning i didn't have to go out to the barn was christmas morning but besides that you work every day and that's kind of the way that it is in baseball because uh, it feels like you have a game just about every day uh, and for me I, I mean it was a phenomenal way to grow up you know being outside we actually didn't have a television. Um, you know, most of the information that I got was following uh, games and teams on radio, especially at night when the airwaves would bounce, AM uh, radio airwaves. Um, but it, it, it's really, I, I can't say it was the – if you were to, you know, try to figure out the best way to raise a baseball fan, it, mine wouldn't have been the best because there was just such a lack of information – um, you know, in this very isolated farm in central Vermont. It's funny how you go from isolated to one of the guys with the most information right now. Well, and that's why when the first time I started using Twitter, I kept on thinking to myself, man, I would have absolutely loved this as a kid, where you could get information as it breaks in real time uh, versus what I experienced as a kid. The you know, the one radio station that we could get consistently in the mornings was one called WDEV in Waterbury, 550. And their uh, sports shows, the one time they gave the scores was at 715, which is exactly the time the school bus was supposed to arrive. So I would just pray and pray and pray that, <laughs> that the bus would either be a, maybe a minute or two late or they'd give the scores a minute or two early 
Uh, it was definitely, you know, scan information. And then on Sundays, we'd get the Sunday paper, New York Times, Boston Globe. Uh, I got to read Peter Gammons when I was a kid. Uh, and, you know, that's when I got an absolute fix of baseball information. So when you started covering the game, you didn't have social media. You didn't have, like, pod, the, your podcast platform. How has that changed over the course of your career and made your job easier or maybe even harder? Well, dramatically, uh, it's changed it a lot. You know, I, uh, at the, my first newspaper job out of college, I went to Vanderbilt, uh, and graduated in 1988, and I covered the AAA Nashville Sounds in, in 1989 and 1990. Um, you know, and that was for an afternoon newspaper uh, that went out of business about a decade later. You know, they would have, uh, you know, one deadline, which was 4.30 in the morning because it came out at about noon. Uh, and you think about that, and even when I, you know, went to the San Diego Union and the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times, you had – you know, two or three set deadlines in a, in a given evening. And now the news cycle is 24 hours. And that is absolutely relentless. And, you know, a classic example of that was what we saw on Thursday with all this stuff about, you know, the Mets uh, parting ways with Carlos Beltran and then the, the various players firing off uh, accusations, opinions about what happened in the science ceiling stuff. Uh, I mean, it just kept on going and going and going. And that that wouldn't have been possible uh, when I first got in the, into the business because there wasn't that, you know, the, the, there was only one deadline for news in a given day. It's completely changed it. And talking about the, the Astros and now you talked about keeping busy on the farm and how that's prepared you for this. I can only imagine that your phone's been, been buzzing, going off recently with everything that's going on. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, and I mean, when the Athletic first broke the story back in early November, just right away hearing from executives, hearing from, you know, players, hearing from agents who represent players about, um, you know, how this was going to open up a Pandora's box. And I'd been hearing, you know, a lot and talked a lot about the, the complaining and the level of paranoia over sign stealing that it really develops, you know, during the 2017 season and, and uh grew exponentially in 18 and grew exponentially this year. It's something that certainly got, you can't find anybody in baseball who doesn't have a strong opinion about it. And there's a lot of anger uh, as the details come out about what the Astros are doing. I, I think the Astros got caught up in the idea that everyone was doing sign stealing exactly like they do. I don't believe that to be the case. And I think the response from the, from the sport, tells you a lot how it probably wasn't as prevalent as the Astros assumed. Yeah, and I heard that other teams were actually upset with the, the punishment that the Astros received, thinking that they should have gotten more, almost. Yeah, very much. Uh, no question about it, because, uh, you know, the feeling among other teams is is that there were two individuals on the Astros organization who were uh, suffered, you know, penalties. A.J. Hinch getting a year suspension, Jeff Luno getting a year suspension, you know, subsequently fired by the Astros. But the organization itself really didn't take much of a hit. I mean, think about this. You know, the, the team was fined $5 million, which is the maximum that Rob Manfred, the commissioner, can fine any team. But that salary, or excuse me, that fine is more than offset by the salary they save by not having either Hinch or Luno. 
Um, uh, you know, they, they lost draft picks first and second round for the next two years. They pick at the back of the draft. So it's not that big of a deal. And other folks with other teams are upset uh, about the fact that they didn't take away international uh, spending money and amateurs from places, uh, you know, like Dominican Republic. Um, and they were really upset, I think, that the, that the players weren't disciplined. Now, I, I, I think the rationale for the commissioner not to discipline the players it was perfectly reasonable because if you were to go down that rabbit hole and try to chase down and absolutely prove with the union defending the players that you know this player or that player did this exactly on this date, I think it would have been really difficult, and the whole process would have, and I say this, in a nonpartisan way, it would have made that like the impeachment process look like a breeze <laughs> uh, compared to the way that the you know the baseball process would have been to try to discipline players. But people around the sport really feel like that the players are getting off here, despite the fact that they uh, they really benefited directly from it. To me, it almost feels like AJ Hinch is kind of like a scapegoat because, as you said, they can't really pin it on the players and anyone else. But do you think? that other organizations would have liked to see maybe Altuve or Bregman get, get suspended or fined as well? Something, some sort of sanctions. Um, I, I haven't, and I, I disagree with you on A.J. Hinch. I think that, you know, he was appropriately, um, uh, appropriately penalized because he probably is one of a very small handful of people who actually could have stopped this thing from happening. Um, you know, I, in my job on Sunday Night Baseball, I spent a lot of time on the opposite end of the dugout uh, and, and have walked down that hallway where you know, they had the trash can, they had the monitors, that television monitor is no more than 30 feet from where A.J. Hinch would watch the games. So if they were banging on a trash can, that was right behind him. <laughs> and if at any point, you know, in the, in the report, uh, according to the investigators, A.J. Hinch was trying to make the case, look, I never supported this. I was always didn't feel right about it. I disabled the monitor twice. Please, you're the manager of the team. And at any point, if AJ had said, no, we're not doing this, guys, uh, and he had stepped up, then he could have ended the thing. If you think of you know, the way they chose to do the discipline, it's like if they were to go after members of an army, they went after the general and they went after the colonel and they kind of left the privates alone. Uh, and, and so I think that's that's what uh, you know upsets folks with other teams is that the privates in the end were the ones who benefited the most from the cheating. So I'll ask you one last question on this topic because I'm sure we could talk about it all day. On the other oh, side yeah. of the coin, uh, I know the travel coach Colin and I grew up playing for. He could he could figure out the signs of other coaches when they were telling their players to steal, bunt. You know he could pick that up by usually the third or fourth inning. So some people say it's a skill and it's baseball IQ. From that flip side of the point, are there any people in MLB who think maybe, you know, picking up signs is part of the game, but just maybe upset with how the Astros went about it? Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. I, I think that, you know, uh, that there is a general feeling in baseball that if the third base coach is giving signs and the other team figures it out, then that's on the team giving the signs. If there's a runner leading off second base, and he looks in at home plate. And I, I bet, for example, a guy uh, like Eduardo Perez, my colleague here at ESPN, I bet you he was excellent at that. You know, I've heard that Carlos Delgado uh, used to play with the Blue Jays, was really good at that. Carlos Beltran 
was was really good at that. Um, you know, if they see those signs leading off at second base and they they give an indication to the hitter on location or something like that, that's totally fair game. I think is as you know, as someone who played, what was different about what the Astros were doing was to have a camera and you know illegally using a camera, uh, you know, feed from a a camera in center field locked in on the catcher and then in real time having someone sitting in the back, whether it was a player, whether it was a a staffer, bang on the trash can and give an indication to the hitter in real time what the sign was. So in the span of about a second and a half, they would decipher the sign and then indicate to the hitter with that sound what the pitch was going to be. That's a completely different situation, and that's why – I mean, you're seeing such a strong reaction, you know, uh, opposing players like Mike Clevenger of the Indians, all but suggesting that he's going to throw at hitters next year. And I do think that in the summer coming up, you know, not only is it going to be difficult for the Astros players when they go out on a visiting ball field, I think at times it's going to feel like a perp walk because of all the stuff they're going to hear from the stands, from the fans. But I wouldn't at all be surprised if all summer long you're going to have situations, two outs, nobody on base, batter up, Oh wow! Fastball in off the butt, fastball in the middle of the back, that sort of thing. If you told me right now that the Astros are going to lead the league and hit by pitches this year, I wouldn't be shocked. So let's let's go back to your career. Um, you started uh, covering Nashville at uh, AAA, and then you worked with, with the Padres and the Orioles and the Mets and the Yankees. What is that experience like just going from all these different organizations, covering them with all the different fan bases in different cities? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a great experience. I mean, covering minor leagues and getting, and getting that perspective and understanding about player development and how that works. And, you know, when I started covering was right at the outset of the steroid era as well. Um, so I had some, you know, before and after view of that. I think the greatest gift that I got was when I covered the Padres, I got to cover Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn, who not only, you know, was an unbelievable player, you know, uh, you know uh, someone who was a perennial all-star, uh, you know, was a near unanimous selection for the Hall of Fame, but he was a tremendous person to cover for a young reporter like I was because he loved to talk baseball. And he could speak anecdotally. He just didn't give great quotes. He would, like, paint a picture for you. Um, and it helped me, really, in, in writing stories and and learning how to craft a story. Because if I, you know, asked Derek Jeter, who I covered for four years, hey, Derek, tell me about that hit in the, the game when he hit the ninth inning. I don't know. Got a, got a pitch and, you know, got a hit and we won. Uh, if I asked Tony Gwynn that same question, it would be like something like this. I was standing in the on-deck circle next to Phil Plantier, and I saw the reliever came, come in, and I knew on the second pitch he was going to throw me a slider. And I was going to turn on that uh, pitch, and I was going to drive it into right center field, and we were going to walk off, and, and I could celebrate at home with Alicia. I mean, <laughs> Tony, Tony just painted stories when, when, uh, when he talked about baseball. And, you know, Derek – wasn't someone who shared I covered Cal Ripken for two years he wasn't someone who was always sharing with reporters Tony shared everything and it was such a great learning experience for me being around someone that good who was who was that interested in talking about baseball but then you know you referenced I mean the fact that I got to cover four teams 
you get to cover a lot of different players, a lot of different front offices. You get to know a lot of people, and that's been really valuable. What did it mean to you to vote for the National Baseball Hall of Fame? Please tell us about your decision to stop voting for the Hall of Fame, and what was that process like when you did partake in the voting? Well, and I actually stopped doing that uh, four years ago. Um, you know, I did it for the better part of the decade, but I thought that all the issues with the with the steroid era, uh, for me, made it very clear that the writers shouldn't be involved in this process. Because, you know, when I first started doing it, it was just sort of assessing players based on the production in their careers. And then as time went on, you know, I, I thought it became like a morality test. The writers turned it into one. I didn't believe it should be one. Um, I voted for Roger Clemens. I voted for Barry Bonds. I voted for, you know, guys who were suspected of doing steroids um, because I, I thought that, you know, it was so the steroids were so pervasive in baseball that the focus should be on the production. Um, but when I when I voted, it was a, a long process where you get the ballot in early December you mull it over, you, you might, in your mind, write out some different names, you go back over the numbers, and then you send it in. Um, I think the date was, like, December 31st. And, and, you know, at that time, it was a fun process, and i never forget it, what, how cool it was the first time I got to vote. But by the end, I, I just I thought it was terrible. And I do think that the Hall of Fame has been diminished by not only, um, you know, what's happened with the voting, but also how the Hall of Fame itself has handled some of the ch rule changes that seem to be aimed at the steroid guys. When you first started covering baseball, um, like I know for me, that, that'd be just a dream job for, I feel like any kid that grew up with the sport and you get to go out there and you get to interview some of the people you looked up to and watch, you know, all their stats and everything about them. Did you ever find yourself starstruck when you first got to talk to these guys or were you always composed in your, in your questions? I think the most starstruck that I ever was was actually uh, when I bumped into Peter Gammons and, and got to meet him and began to talk with him, and now he's a close friend, uh, because I had grown up reading him, and Ned Martin was the, was the Red Sox radio announcer. I surprised he didn't get like uh, a restraining order against me after he met me for the first time, because I was just so excited, because, you know, this was the, when I was shoveling, uh, you know, shoveling manure in the barn every night, this was the voice that I listened to as, the, as I listened to ball games. This is who I learned baseball from, and I told him that, and I was probably way too excited. Um, I was very nervous when I spoke with uh, Vin Scully for the first time. That was only about four or five years ago. And, you know, I got into baseball because I read a book on Sandy Koufax when I was eight years old. And a few years ago, I got to meet him for the first time, and I was pretty starstruck there. But generally speaking, when it comes to players – I mean, you, you just, you know, you, you just come to realize that they're like everybody else. They've got, you know, their, their ambition and they've got their motivations and they've got their vices and, and they've got family problems and they got good stuff in their family. And, and uh, they're just uh, the only difference is they just have a really cool job. In 2016, the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation established the Jerry Coleman Award, intended to recognize a Marine staff non-commissioned officer who possesses outstanding leadership and unyielding support for the United States Marine Corps and the United States of America. Jerry Coleman postponed his baseball career to serve his nation when at the age of 18, he joined the Marine Corps as a Naval Aviation Cadet. In World War II, Coleman flew 57 combat missions. And in the Korean War, he flew 63 close air support and interdiction strike missions. 
making him the only Major League Baseball player to see combat in two wars. Jerry Coleman retired from the Marine Corps as a lieutenant colonel, and he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame as the Ford C. Frick Award recipient as an announcer in 2005. Despite all the success he had in his life, Coleman was most proud of being a Marine. Please tell us about Lieutenant Colonel Coleman. And I love Jerry. I mean, Jerry, you know, we became friends because I was a beat writer covering the Padres and um, you know, you travel uh, with the team, and so Jerry at that time was the the voice of the the Padres on radio. Um, you know, he was the one known to be hang a star on that one. But um, I, I every time, and I and I got a chance to sit down and talk with him, um, you know, about stories from his service, and in particular, I wanted to hear stories about Ted Williams, who you know he he and Jerry were the only two. Uh, people in baseball who served both in World War II and in the Korean War, and they flew together. Uh, they were both Marine pilots, and Jerry was so unbelievably humble uh, about his service. And, and I can't tell you how many times I was around him, because remember, San Diego is a military town, right? You got Camp Pendleton, they, they train the special, um, they train, train the SEALs out of Coronado, and every Sunday, they would bring a lot of servicemen into, at that point, Jack Murphy Stadium. Uh, now they do it at Petco Park, and you know some of them will wear the camouflage, and they would chant at each other. Um, so I, when I was around Jerry a lot, having a meal, or you know we would be at a, a hotel where the Padres were staying, people would come up and say, thank you for your service. You know, you're a hero. And Jerry, time after time after time after time, I would hear him say, I'm not a hero. The heroes are those poor guys who were left behind uh, because they were killed in action. Those are the, the, the poor guys. I was just doing my job. Um, and I, you know, I, I got to know Jerry and, and that perspective, uh, you know, so well that when I was at ESPN and I, uh, you know, like an opportunity to co-host Mike and Mike in the morning uh, as a fill-in, I'd always ask them on, on uh, Memorial Day on the 4th of July if we could get Jerry on the phone. And he had such a, you know, for someone who had all these, you know, really uh, hair-raising stories about moments in his service, he was so humble about what he did. Um, and I, you know, always to the end of his life, always so much respected that about Jerry. Is there, is there a little friendly rivalry between you and Ken Rosenthal? You know, we worked together at the Baltimore Sun. Uh, we were teammates. And, you know, Kenny was at that, I mean, I had a great time working with him at the Sun. Um, you know, he was a very, he had very hard opinions as a columnist, and I loved being a beat writer, and it was cool. You know, the two of us worked together, and then the intern that we had in the two years I was there was Jason Lockenfora, who's the NFL reporter on CBS. And so, you know, he had the, these three really hungry reporters, and um, you know, we, we had an absolute blast together. My favorite story about Kenny, um, you know, we always thought that Cal Ripken was directly connected to the baseball gods, right? When he was playing in every game for 15 years, if he got hit by a pitch, uh, there'd be a big bruise, and the next day the bruise would be gone. And stories like that. Well, Kenny one time uh, wrote a column uh, when Cal was in a slump, suggesting, you know what, it's time for Cal Ripson to end the consecutive game streak. He's hurting the team. And uh, as Kenny always wrote, it was a very strong, strong, strong opinion. 
Well, that night, Cal came up for his first at-bat at Camden Yards. The press box in Camden Yards is very low, um, and it's behind home plate. And Cal, uh, with his first swing, smoked a foul ball right back into the press box, and it shattered Kenny's laptop, which was for us total confirmation that Cal had a direct line to the baseball gods. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I got a lot of stories about Kenny, and I'm sure he had a lot, of, a lot of them about me. We loved working together at the Sun. So growing up in the Northeast, I'm sure, you, you, as you said, you listen to Red Sox games. What do you think's next for the Red Sox after letting go of Alex Cora? Where do you think they're going to go? Yeah, and I, I actually, you know, I was not a Red Sox fan. I was a Dodger fan, but the Red Sox were the team that I followed because that was the only radio station, the only radio feed I could get until about 9 o'clock when the, when the uh, AM airwaves would begin to bounce and maybe the Dodgers would be traveling back east. They, uh, the Red Sox, it, it's, it's funny because we kind of have an idea where the Mets are going to go with their managerial search, maybe Hensley Mullins. Uh, maybe Eduardo Perez, Buck Showalter's already interviewed for the Astros job to replace A.J. Hinch. But the Red Sox, it seems to be more open and more complicated because they're still under investigation for sign stealing from 2018. And so Ron Renneke, their bench coach, would be a natural candidate. But uh, look, if he had knowledge of the sign stealing in 2018, I don't know how the Red Sox could offer him the job. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about Jason Baratek. Personally, and I've never asked Jason this question, I, I have never gotten a sense that he's like pushing to be a major league manager. And their general manager, Heim Bloom, is, is new to that job. And so there's not a, a, a really strong early sense yet about who's going to be the guy. I tell you this, you know, Alex Cora is a friend of mine because I worked with him at ESPN for four years. You know, what happened with him is, is uh, self-inflicted, and I think he'd be the first one to say that. But it kind of makes me sad. It makes me sad because I, I think he's as talented a manager as I've ever seen, and I just don't know if he's ever going to get the opportunity to do it again because of the nature of what happened. Before we let you go, are there any trade teasers out there or little free agency bits you might be able to you see coming up? Hopefully not Francisco Lindor. Uh, I'm an Indian fan. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that Lindor is going to be traded in July, and I think Mookie Betts is going to be traded in July. I, 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 you know, I had a general manager say to me last week that he thinks that the big guys are going to move before spring training. I have my doubts about that, especially after some conversations I had today. Um, the Red Sox have set an extremely high price on Mookie Betts. They're basically saying, yeah, you can have Mookie Betts, but you also have to take David Price and his contract and give us prospects. <laughs> And other teams are balking at that, uh, balking at that notion. So I, I think it'll more likely be in the middle of the summertime before those big names move. And, and I think another guy to watch, and he's not, you know, as much of a household name, but he had such a great year last year as Marcus Semien of the Oakland Athletics, who's a free agent next fall. You know, he was a guy who was in the MVP conversation for how well he played. He might get moved too if, uh, if Oakland's not in the race. Well, sir, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. We've had a blast. Absolutely. Me too. Thanks for having me on. We hope you found value in this conversation with Mr. Buster Olney. We encourage you to learn more about Jerry Coleman's incredible life story at activevalorawards.org. And you can follow Buster's work at ESPN.com. You can find similar content at Active Valor Awards on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The next conversation of the American Valor Podcast will feature Captain Greg Zettler, 
from the United States Navy. Thank you for listening.